So most of you would have heard of, have even followed the, the bombshell interview given a few months ago by Meghan and Harry. The interview with Oprah. It rocked the nation. It reverberated around the world, as we know. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex gave a telltale conversation of what had occurred in their family breakdown. Now, I'm not in any position to comment on this right now. I'm not an expert on these things, but one thing's for sure. Words were exchanged. Words were exchanged about their intense family affair that was once private has now become public. This family affair consequently, and these words, this exchange of words has now caused this division and possibly created a widening gulf between the royal family members. See, words have been spoken behind the scenes that we don't know fully. But we know about the words that have been exchanged in the public. So it gives us a glimpse. Our words matter. They can hurt people despite our intentions. They can carry weight across the oceans, across the transatlantic. They can reverberate around the world. So words that can cut deep into our very heart. They stick in our minds for the longest of time. But why? Why is this? Why? Because words communicate. They communicate internal workings of our heart. We often can't hold our tongue. A slip of tongue here and there. We are quick to speak. See, all human beings exist to communicate with one another. God has created us to communicate with him and with other brothers and sisters, other people created in God's image. The problem is that since Adam and Eve sinned, the very sin in Genesis chapter 3, there's been a major breakdown in communication between ourselves and God and ourselves and our fellow human beings. The serpent deceived Eve with those slippery, cunning words. See, James has already spoken, as we've been looking at James, about our speech. He mentions in James 1.19, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Also in that first chapter in verse 27, 26 rather, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, he's, this person's religion is worthless. He goes on to say in James 2, 12 and 14, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith, but does not have works, he says? Can that faith save him? I want to draw our attention to three points this morning as we look at our key passage. Number one, the judgment of the tongue. We see that in verse one. Why are our words significant? Number two, the sin of, of the tongue. We see that in verse 2 to 12. What sins do we commit by our words? And finally, the control of the tongue. In verse 2 and 5, 2, 5. How do we control our tongue? How do we control our speech? What we say? As we look at chapter 3 and eventually chapter 4, we see this A and B scenario. A, B and A. One, two, 
one-to-one pattern, right? We see in chapter 3, verse 1 to 12, that we're going to look at today, it discusses about taming the tongue. And further on in chapter 3, 13 to 18, we see the need for wisdom as we speak to others. And finally, in chapter 4, verse 1 to 12, we see it comes back to talk about the tongue again. The tongue causing conflict is such a major issue. James devotes such a large part of his book to our speech, to our tongue. We build up with our tongue. We pull down with our tongue. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. Let's look at the first point, the judgment of the tongue. See, James commences with a sincere and great warning. Verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. We need to know who James is addressing this command to. He says, my brothers. Addressing it to Christians, Jewish Christians particularly here. He says this word time and time again. On each occasion, he says it. He says, my brother, you know. When we hear my brother, you know there's a command coming after that. A command or a warning is attached. He writes to beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, followers of Christ, those counted worthy to be Christians. Chapter 1, verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet the trials of various kinds. Chapter 1, verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Verse 19 of chapter 1, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Verse 14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have words? My brother, my brother, my brother, my people, he says. And we reach chapter 3. Another command. This is a wonderful way that James constantly challenges us addresses issues he communicates deliberately addressing difficult subjects yet flowing from a heart that flows from the cross James communicates truth in love faith in action teaching yet with a humbleness and care for the people he's addressing he's set an example for us even with his words as he writes these words to us also So we encounter another warning to these Jewish Christians and ourselves. Not many of you should become teachers. This word speaks of a teacher or master, a scholar, and in the context of the church, a leader, someone who has a specific function to teach. James is discouraging and warning against the selfish, ambitious desires for the office of teaching because there is exposure, brothers and sisters, exposure to greater judgment. The words we say, we are reminded of Diotrephus, as brother um, Rob led us in Bible studies a while back. We see this man in, in, in Third John, he only desired, he put himself first. This leader of the church put himself first. He did not accept the authority of the apostles and he constantly talked wickedness and nonsense about them. See, John Calvin actually took this word differently this word teacher he he took teachers to mean something more of a master of morals he opposed the notion that teachers were 
the here refer to those who performed a public duty in the church, but rather those who thought themselves to be masters of morals, given them the right to pass judgment on others. They sought this position so that they can then exert the verbal gymnastics on other people. Such people at the time would thrust themselves into the position, mainly seeking reputation, born out of blaming others. See, Calvin's point was that individuals, these individuals, many of them, desired to be masters in this way, with the motivation that stemmed from hypocrisy and an ambition that was contrary to caring for those that they were speaking to. There was no love in their heart. There was no desire for them to come to Christ. He concluded that James forbade, forbade not many to seek such office of master because the innate disease of sin, the sin of man, it, it means that few of us actually approach the position with a right desire, a right purpose. And many actually come to it with an evil ambition to expose others with their sinister ways, with slander and without censorship of their speech. See, the office of teacher is right, I believe, in this context, especially because James says, we, we who teach. James is also teacher. So we know the context is, he's specifically talking about the office of teaching. But this can also be extended to other parts of the, 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 the church life. Some of the school teachers, there's many ways that we teach within the church setting. So I do think the context here allows for Calvin's point, especially when we consider those that he's talking about, especially people like the Pharisees. They were teachers of the law, we know that. But these were people that were false in their ways, false with selfish ambitions. See, the very nature of being a teacher of God's word involves communicating, involves words. See, abuse in this role with words to slander, maliciously cutting people's hearts, false teaching, telling lies, Judging others without mercy, as James says, it will come with a greater, a stricter judgment. Luke 12, 48 says, Because everyone who much, much is given, of him much will be required. That is why there's greater strictness. With greater responsibility comes a stricter judgment lives souls eternal life is at stake for those who care about others leaders especially teachers the key is in the responsibility adam was given such a great responsibility to tend the garden that god had given to him to work the land to look after the animals and name them such great responsibility to love to protect his wife. But his failure and sin has now meant we are all imputed when we come into this world with sin. It's flowed right down from him. Failure and responsibility is a detriment not only to ourselves, but to others. The severity of judgment on the sins of false teachers, we know we've been discussing this in, in Bible studies. We see how Jude compares these false teachers to how the unbelief of the Israelites who came out of Egypt, but they perished. Many of them perished. 
That is the severity of the judgment of our words. See, many seek the prestige, the honor, the gain, the pride in what they perceive to be a lofty position of teaching, yet they do not examine their words. They do not weigh the cost of what they're putting themselves into. They seek selfish gain or use their position to excuse sins in their lives. We see this constantly from pastors and leaders around the world. Due to not growing in controlling their tongue. See, James includes himself. He says, we who teach will have to face God on the judgment day. With every word that we speak, it's taken into account every loose word. Every blockage or hindrance to a brother or sister, from the little ones to the elderly, we've got to give an account to God. See, verse 2 gives further understanding why we should consider greatly whether to desire to become a teacher. For we all stumble in many ways, he says. James could be thinking of those words. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Those words he had said to Jesus maybe growing up. Just doubting who he is. See, everyone stumbles, James says. Everyone falls into many ways, many sins. We all fall short. This is not just now addressing teachers. He moves on to address all of us. We are all sinners in various ways, in many ways. Not only referring to the quantity of our sins, but the types of sins. This is trouble for us. Teachers are sinners. We're all sinners, right? We need to take care that we're not teaching error or walking in the way of false teachers. See, it's not just the words of teachers that are judged. We see in Matthew 12, 36, Jesus says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. Every careless word that they speak. Your words will justify you or they will condemn you. On that day. This is a conflict that we all face as Christians, if we're being honest. Our imperfections are revealed by our words. This smallest member of our body is so powerful. This tongue. This disease of the tongue needs a cure. It needs saving. And this is our second point. When we to look at the sin, the sin of the tongue. Verse 2 goes on to say this, and in every, if, every, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So we've moved away from just addressing teachers. Now we move to talking about each and every one of us. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, perfect woman, perfect person. We recognize there is no one, there's no one born from the loins of a man, from the womb of a woman. Death has not sinned. No one is perfect. No, not one. The human race has been infected with sin right from Adam and Eve. We know this. The Bible says we are dead. Dead in our trespasses. In our sinful state, we are enemies of God. So James is saying here, when he mentions the word stumble, he's talking about to fail 
to fall. Specifically here, we're looking at stumbling in our speech, stumbling in what we say. But often it's not just what we say, it's what we don't say. Both reflect our control. We can say, oh, I can say nothing, but sometimes our lack of words is also born out of lack of control. See, what verse 2 is helping us to see is that anyone who does not fall into sin by what they say is perfect. If we all sin in many ways, many ways, we fall into various types of sins. We are not exempt even as followers of Christ. The capacity to sin is on a wide scale. Sin robs us of our stability. It robs us of, we're staggering from pillar to post, almost like someone is drunk. Our words reflect that. It, it also affects our identity. We're bruised by sin. We're cut. We don't reflect God's glory, God's likeness. When we sin, it affects our identity. We miss the mark. We miss the standard that God has set for us. If we notice also in verse 2, it says, and, after he says many ways, this and is pointing us that, to the fact that sin, the sin of the tongue is so significant. It's a significant factor in how we sin. The ways that we sin, majority of the time, is because of our words. We can, we can literally commit and, and fall foul of the Ten Commandments by what we say. We can murder with our words. So our spiritual, what, what, what is the correlation between what we say and, and, and therefore our maturity? Because this is what he means by the word perfection here. He's talking about people that are growing and maturing in what we say. We're not perfect here on earth, but we need to mature and grow in that. See, our speech is a spiritual gauge, so to speak, of our heart temperature. Where do we not normally measure the temperature? We measure it in the mouth and it measures the temperature of the systemic, the body. It's a barometer of the heart condition. Our tongue is fiery. It reveals our character. If your tongue is fiery, your character is also fiery. Our speech reveals the internal aspect of our nature. What is unseen, what is going on inside, it reflects our character and therefore it's a great examiner of the whole body, of the whole being of a person. A person that's maturing and controlling their tongue is also maturing in controlling their desires, their will, their character, their whole body. So you can hide your character for a few months when you're courting, when you're working, when you just started out at a place of work, when you've just engaged a new friendship. You, but your character your, you will be revealed one day by your words. Three, four months in, yes. But eventually people will see who you are. See, James focuses on the tongue out of the many ways that we stumble because the tongue since the fall is a gateway for many evil. Before we look at how we can control our tongue, we need to see and look at the nature of this tongue, its actions. See, the nature of the tongue, when we look at verse 6, it says it's set on fire, set on fire by hell. It's pointing us, this word hell is it's pointing us to a valley of Hinnom. This was a valley where there was loads of human sacrifices. 
before Jesus came into this world. And but at the time of Jesus, it was also a place that was constantly burning. People would take rubbish there, all forms of nonsense was constantly burning, full of fire. It takes us back, doesn't it? This, this, this set on fire by hell, it can signify two things. Firstly, that actually that Satan is the, has corrupted our tongue. Every human being has been corrupted. The tongue has been corrupted right from the garden. We see how Satan uses, he was crafty in the way that he spoke to Eve. He twisted God's word. Fall of the angels had already occurred before this. And then we come to the fall of man because of cunning words, selfish ambitions of Satan. But also this word set on fire, this phrase set on fire by hell, also signifies the judgment. The judgment when we're not careful with our words. Hell. Constant burning. See, God gives good gifts, James says. Good gifts, perfect gifts. Satan has distorted that. Our tongue that was used to glorify God, that's meant to worship God and sing praises, declare of his goodness and his wonder, is now being corrupted. It's set on fire by hell. The tongue is a fire. It consumes our words cut deep. I've got to say, it goes for those that have many words to say, and even those that are quiet and, 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 and reserved. Words still cut. Both characters are able to. I've, I've met the, the quietest of person, and they say something. So, whoa, where did that come from? It can be fire. That's what verse 6 says the tongue is fire. It consumes not just ourselves, but it consumes those that we utter and we, we, we treat them unkindly with our words and our phrases. Verse 8 says, the tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. The tongue has been set on fire by hell and corrupted by evil. And this corruption results in disobedience and self-idolatry. It has become a restless evil uncontrolled, constantly, actively looking to do evil, even when we don't intend it to do. Our tongue, in its natural state, cannot resist the urge to pull someone down. It just wants to say something about someone, to profane, profane the name of God, to use the Lord's name in vain, to use foul language. How often do we bump our toe and just firm it. Have we changed from that old man that wants to swear, that wants to say those things? It's full of evil and poison. It can't help but overflowing and destroying our body and others. See, James extends this corrosive and destructive nature of the tongue. This fact that it's deadly and poisonous. It reminds us, it takes us back to the snake again in Genesis. When we think about snakes, the poison that comes from them, it has the ability to murder someone. See, Psalms 140 verse 3 says, They make their tongue sharp as a serpent's, and under their lips is the venom of asp. A tongue can be cunning, can be deceiving. 
funny because one of the first words that kids learn to say is no. When they first say it, it's, it's kind of funny. It's just like, oh, he said no. But the more they say no as they get older, there's this defiancy. There's this defiant nature about them. No. That word slowly progresses and grows and their vocabulary becomes some stage that we're at now as adults where we've been full of so much words, we're able to communicate. Do we know how to control those words? Do we know when to hold back? Do we know when to speak? We look secondly at the actions of the tongue. See, verse 5 to 12 helps us to see this. Helps us examine the fruit of the corrupted tongue. The tongue is a small member. He compares it to the bits that go around the horse to control the horse, but also the rudder to control a large ship. And then he says, it boasts of great things. This tongue of ours, it boasts of great things. With it, we boast. We boast about our achievements. We boast about our ambitions, our possessions. We demonstrate our pride, our good works, where we go, what we do. All such boastings come from an evil place, actually. But there is a type of boasting that is good. A boasting where we boast in Christ. We boast in what Christ has done for us. His goodness. We boast, he says, in our Lord and Father. Our Saviour. Our Abba Father. The one that's given us new life. The tongue is a small member of the whole body, but it has a huge capacity for boasting about many and great things. See, these Jewish Christians were mostly poor when we look back. So we think, what can they boast about? If you don't have much possession, what can you boast about? They can still be boastful, and they were. They talked down on others. It's easy for us to talk down on others in a way that we look at someone else and say, they seem to have more than us. And so we, we, we think, therefore, that we are humble. By the, by our, our, we boast about that. We boast that, you know, oh, that person, is, they got all of this and they do all of that. Oh, look at me, though. I'm humble. Look at my position. We can boast in our humility also, or supposed humility. They boasted in their partiality in the way they dealt with rich folks. That's what he said before. When we look at verse 5 to 6, we see that the tongue damages, destroys others like a small fire. It can start off very small. But in a world of unrighteousness, that's what James says, a world of unrighteousness unfolds. It's likened to a small fire that can consume just the Amazon forest. It starts off very small. We see the, the fires in America all the time, right? Just it starts very small, wildfire, and it spreads. That's how the tongue can be, and that's how it has been, to spread a world of unrighteousness across the world. See, fires often have their purposes. They can provide light. They can provide heat. But we're talking about this uncontrolled small fire, the tongue that multiplies and grows to devastating levels. 
It's unrestrained. See, many families are ruined by miscommunication. Foul exchange of words. Nations have entered into war just purely because someone has said something they didn't like. Disputes and arguments, brothers, sisters in the church, split over disagreements. Even our verbal confrontation to address the sin in the life of someone else, it can turn out quite wrong by the way we say it. The intentions are there, but the tongue is an evil sometimes. It's a fire, it consumes. We see the lawsuits, divorce, job losses brought about by the tongue. It starts off small and it grows. It's a world of unrighteousness. The greatest sins are conspired by an uncontrolled tongue and evil, evil speech, murder, theft, abuse in marriage, perjury, false doctrine, false teaching, defamation of someone's character, bearing false witness. The list goes on. It contains a host of wickedness. It's a world on its own, a small tongue. <laughs> How can we stand before God with our tongue? James says, it, he goes on to say in that verse 6, it, set, it sets on fire the entire course of life. The words that we say, what we speak about others, it, it's, it's, it's something that's a cycle Every part of our lives is affected by this. Our work, our jobs, our interactions with others. There is nothing that the, the tongue cannot have an influence on. It stains the owner's body. It stains our lives. When we think about where it's positioned, it's just its position alone. We know that just as with food and air goes through the mouth, and have an effect on our bodies. The tongue's location has a huge influence on what stains our bodies also. But we can also make a wide application that actually the teaching of God's word in the church is important and we must hold our teachers to account, hold me to account, because it influences the body of Christ. See, Matthew 15, verse 11 says, and it helps us understand this further. It says, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Jesus then goes on to say in verse 17 to 18 of Matthew 15, what goes into the mouth is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this is what defiles a person. Finally, we see in verse 12, 10 to 12, the same mouth that blesses the Lord. We can come to church and praise our God. And we know if someone, as soon as we leave church, if someone cuts us up whilst we're driving, it's very difficult to hold your tongue. 
Sometimes we're like, what did that person just? We go from one extreme to the next. It's so easily done. But he says, does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This ought not to be so. We must control our tongues. Our final point today, controlling the tongue. How do we do this? We've seen it's a fire, it consumes. It's a world of unrighteousness, of wickedness. We see the effects, it's nature. But how do we control our tongue? Firstly, the control of our tongue is desirable. That's what James is saying. We see it from the illustrations from verse 2 to 12. It's, a desirable, it's desirable to have control of what we say because what we say, we said from the start, it matters. It's a fruit of character, a dossier of our secret life of our secret thoughts, the gateway to our heart. A person who does not fall into sin, into what they say, they don't slander, no backbiting, no lies, no hatred, no malice, no gossiping. Such person that can control these things is a perfect person. We should all desire this. This is Christ-likeness. He's speaking about Jesus. This is Christ-likeness. Someone that's able to bridle their tongue it's an indicator of our relationship with God if we are not growing in bridling and controlling our tongue how great would it be to have such tight control of our tongue as we keep our emotions in check that we don't speak harshly to our children when they do something, but we speak with grace and understanding, looking to teach them in the way of the Lord. Or when we are tired and hungry, I fall into this. When you're tired and hungry, you don't want to talk. You just want to eat. We eat now. We're likely to cut someone up just because we're hungry. It's natural to all of us sometimes. Wouldn't it be amazing to, to not to lambast someone who you're upset at, but rather, you, you, just, just because they've mistreated you and misrepresented you, but yet you respond in a graceful manner. You're able to speak your mind, but you speak with blessing, with, with peace, looking to engage them, looking to make peace. What about at work? When people ask us to join in with discussions about our bosses, that person, oh, you know what they did? Not what they said. Look at their character. But yet we can hold our tongue, knowing that what we say matters. Yet we can respond with seasoned mouths that are seasoned by salt, full of wisdom. Wouldn't we want to dwell with our spouses in such a manner also in how we relate to them? When there's disagreements, when there's times of when we don't see things eye to eye, maybe we haven't completed the task they set us and we're upset at them, would we not want to be graceful, respectful, 
express ourselves and communicate love, even how we speak to them. We all should desire this, I hope. But we are sinners. We stumble in many ways. The mouth communicates and projects terrible things. Malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, insolence, haughty behaviour, boasting, disobedience to parents, foolishness, faithless, heartless, ruthless actions and behaviours. That's Romans 1. It's not just talking about unbelievers. This is asking and reminding us not to forget also that we can fall into these things. But the question is, are we dying to ourselves? Each day, are we dying to ourselves? Are we putting on that whole jacket because it fits that old man? Because it, it still looks nice in the cupboard. Are we walking in a newness of life? We've been made new in Christ. Are we choosing to die to that old man? See, verse 7 to 8 talks about, it says, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile, and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. Animals have been tamed. I've watched recently different types of animals. You, lions, tigers, difficult things to do. But this tongue, James is reminding us, is difficult to tame the tongue. See, on this side of eternity, we must mature, however. We must grow in bridling our tongue. But when we see Jesus face to face, we'll be like him. But for now on this earth, let's continue to grow. Let's continue to press on. Let's ask for God for forgiveness when we, when we say things that are wrong. This has to be our pursuit, our desire. Something that we, we, we take care and say, this is, I need to be careful with my words. That's faith. In action, that's the work of faith. How have we spoken to our siblings and our brothers and our mums, our colleagues this week? What words have we used? James, as I close shortly. James points us to two different things. The bridling of the tongue, two illustrations. The first illustration is how we bridled the, the, the horse by putting bits in its mouth. It signifies that control, obedience, causing the horse to be obedience. This is specifically talking about these horses in battle. So how are you able to guide a horse during a battlefield, during a war that we face? Isn't it just a resemblance of the world that we live in right now? People are ready to cut us up with what they say, but how should we respond? We must bridle our tongue, control it, be slow to speak. He then uses another illustration. He talks about a small rudder. This would have been wooden ships back in this day that would have been guided by strong winds. But yet a small rudder is able to guide, guide the ship. This tongue is powerful but needs controlling. So how do we control our tongue? We must be people of God's word. The word of God is so significant. 
We must study, study the life of Christ, how he responded, how he was sinless, perfect in his word and deed. James himself had grown up in the household of Jesus as his half-brother. He would have noticed that his words were different, that his character was different. He did not sin with his words. The word is what goes into our hearts that influences what we say. It tells us, it limits us, it puts a boundary by things we can't commit ourselves to say. It's what we need to grow in. God is not careless with his words. He says that every word that comes forth from him, not return to him until it's fulfilled what he has sent it to do. He's purposeful with his words. He's just in his words. He's loving with his words. But he's also going to judge the world with his words. We must understand God's word and grow in it. We must seek also to apply God's word. We read God's word day in, day out. But when we come into those times of disagreements, when it's so easy to let loose, are we applying God's word? Are we slow to speak? Slow to anger? Or do we say that our anger is justified? So therefore I can respond because that person said something to me. We see it in marriage settings all the time. You said, so I said also. It ought not to be so. Be slow to speak. Proverbs 17, 27 to 28 says, The one who has knowledge uses words with restraint, and whoever has understanding is even-tempered. Even fools are thought wise if they keep silent, and discerning if they hold their tongue. Even fools are thought wise. How much, much awesome. I'm not calling anyone a fool, right? <laughs> but we can hold our tongue. It makes a difference by what we say. He said, if we let loose, we often can't take back those words. We hear it sometimes. I'm off. I've left this marriage. What does that encourage our spouses? When we speak to our children in anger because we've had a tough day, how do we take back those words that we say? It's best not to have said them in the first place. We must live as people daily sacrificing ourselves, daily sacrificial living for the Lord. We must seek God in prayer. Now we've been reading, pastors taking us through the Song of Ascents, and we read in the first passage that we looked at, Psalms 120. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from deceitful tongue. That has got to be our prayer each day. Lord, help me. Let the words of my mouth, in Psalms 19 verse 14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. See, we learn self-control by the very thing that has been broken up by, by Satan with his words, cunning words, the relationship with God and our fellow human beings, we, we learn also, we learn also to grow in, our, in control of our tongue by our relationships. Godly relationships are so important. 
people that can hold us to account, people that can say, hey bro, no, don't speak like that. People that encourage us in times of suffering and say, press on brother, press on sister. Our communication continues to grow as we read his word and as we grow in fellowship with others. We need to take care of what we watch, what we listen to. Music is such an influence on what we say. To the youth, I say, I've been a youth once. And the way you can feel your emotions can be influenced by what you allow into your ears. It influences your tongue, the way you speak to your parents, the way you speak to your friends. Take care also what you watch. These things take a hold of our hearts subconsciously, we don't know, but our speech will betray us. Let no corrupting tongue or talk come out of your mouth, Ephesians says, but only as such that is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Our Lord and Saviour spoke spoke to build up people. He spoke timely words. Even when he called the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, he said it to win them, to bring them to repentance, to remind them that the way you are living is actually of the devil. He spoke words that fitted the occasion. He gave grace to others. Let's strive to be like Jesus. Let's strive to mature in controlling our tongue. For we know one day, the Bible says we will confess with our tongues that Jesus is Lord. There are those that will confess that Jesus is Lord that will go to eternal damnation or those who will confess that Jesus is Lord that will live with Christ for eternity. The tongue is set on fire by hell. Let's not choose that way. God's purposes are truly for those who believe in him, who trust in his promises, who repent from their sins. Let's cry to the Lord. What an amazing thing that we have the scripture that says, if we confess our sins, if we speak words to the Lord, if we come before him and confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness we confess with our sins he is faithful to us amen